The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Ideal Connection in Multiple Myeloma, Establishing Ophthalmology Oncology Relationships to Overcome Ocular Toxicity. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash AHH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here on a Friday night, and we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, I'm Pranita Tulasi. I'm from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is Dr. Kaufman, um, a professor of hematology and oncology at the Winship Cancer Institute and an expert in uh, multiple myeloma. As you know, we are here to look at the diverse suite of uh, treatment association complications, specifically in multiple myeloma. Um, ophthalmologists are usually not here working with uh, oncology drugs. Um, usually any ocular complications from any oncology drugs are referred to as, as on an as-needed basis, and these aren't a huge part of our practice generally. But there have been a lot of novel therapies that really have changed the standard of care and uh, the, the interaction ophthalmologists and oncologists have these days. Um, many of them have unique mechanisms that seem to affect the eye specifically, and multiple myeloma is a great example of um, medications that require a lot of collaboration with our oncology colleagues. Multiple myeloma is not uh, new to the ophthalmology world. Um, uh, you know, these patients certainly are immunocompromised, and we see a lot of infectious uh, uh, complications because of their multiple myeloma. Um, we uh, can also see plasmocytomas in the orbit. Um, the hypercoagulability can lead to vascular events, and the immunoglobulins can also result in de deposition in the cornea um, and lead to new corneal opacities um, in patients with this diagnosis. But what is multiple myeloma? All right. Uh, good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining. When we were discussing um, giving this presentation, I just uh, 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 made Dr. Tulasi make a promise that I didn't have to say anything about the eye, and I could just talk about myeloma. So I'm going to talk about myeloma. Um, Myeloma is a malignancy of plasma cells. We call uh, malignant plasma cells a plasma cell dyscrasia. Um, there's excessive amount of plasma cells in the marrow. They make the monoclonal antibody. We call it a monoclonal spike, M-spike, paraprotein. They all mean the same thing. Again, the plasma cell's job in life is to make antibodies to help fight and prevent infection. And when that monoclonal, when that plasma cell becomes a myeloma cell or a malignant plasma cell, it continues to make that antibody, that monoclonal antibody. Um, and a lot of the the, the, the uh, symptoms we see in myeloma are related uh, both to the tumor burden as well as uh, cytokines within the microenvironment. This is the enemy. This is the plasma cell. Um, um, you guys look under a microscope for different reasons, but when we look under the microscope, this is what we look for. You, you, the plasma cell has the very typical eccentric nuclei with the perinuclear huff or halo. That is where all of the proteins are being manufactured. And then the dense cytoplasm where the, the proteins are being packaged uh, um, for distribution. 
There's a spectrum of plasma cell disorders. MGUS is very common. MGUS probably happens in 3% of every 70-year-old in this country. MGUS is defined if there's a paraprotein less than 3 grams per deciliter, plasma cells less than 10% in the bone marrow. And uh, MGUS, by definition, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance has no symptoms. There's a a precursor malignancy that we call smoldering myeloma to the pathologist under the microscope. It looks like myeloma. They have more than 10% plasma cells. They have a high paraprotein, but these patients also don't have symptoms. And then myeloma is defined as clonal plasma cells in the marrow or tissue, a monoclonal protein in the setting of symptoms. And when we talk about the symptoms of myeloma, we use the acronym CRAB, we, the CRAB criteria, hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, and lytic bone disease. We've learned in those patients who have smoldering myeloma that there's a subset of smoldering myeloma that don't have any of the CRAB criteria, but they have, they're at such high risk of developing myeloma shortly that we've gone ahead and treated these patients. And these are some biomarkers that we use that where a patient is labeled, doesn't have symptoms, but has such a high risk uh, of progressing within to myeloma within the next year that we go ahead and, and call these patients myeloma and initiate therapy. Treatment of symptomatic myeloma is really tailored to the patient's general health and other comorbidities. The average age of a patient with myeloma is somewhere in the late 60s. Having said that, especially at a tertiary care center, we see we can see patients um, much younger, but again, the average age in the late 60s, and we have to deal with a significant amount of comor comorbidities and a decrease in functional status. And the standard approach of therapy, and we, we left off one of the pillars, and it um, keeps the cornea doctors um, in, in, in work, is we give regular steroids, and, and uh, we, we need our ophthalmologists to help with our, uh, our constant use of steroids and treatment of cataracts. But the other three pillars are, um, are, are immunomodulatory agents, thalidomide and lenalidomide, uh, we all probably remember uh, thalidomide as a very infamous drug in the history of medicine uh, where it was given to women at, uh, um, for um, morning sickness and uh, their babies were born with birth defects. We learned many 40 years later that uh, thalidomide was very effective in treating myeloma and further modifications of thalidomide have led to lenalidomide and pomalidomide and other similar drugs. And now we know the mechanism of action of why the, why the babies were born with birth defects and we know the mechanism of action of why these drugs work. Proteasome inhibitors have become a mainstay, bortezomib particularly, um, and we'll talk a lot about bortezomib later in this talk, and somewhat newer is we have monoclonal antibodies, uh, what we call the naked monoclonal antibodies, daratumumab and isatuximab and elotuzumab, all targeting uh, proteins on the myeloma cell. Um, the standard of care remains in a young and when I say young, um, in myeloma, when we say young, we're talking under, you know, 75 and, and under. So that's young in myeloma. Um, stem cell transplant, as long as these patients are fit and don't have uh, significant comorbidities. 
Now, this, uh, what I'm showing you here is data from our center, and I'm showing for very specific reasons. If you look at the top right, the overall survival, th this represents um, a thousand consecutive patients that have, that came into our practice with newly diagnosed myeloma, and we asked the question, and we treated them in a uniform manner. And the two important things to see here is that the median overall survival for this entire group is over 10 years. And so this is very different than the myeloma of 20 and 30 years ago. Patient, when I see a patient for the first time, I let them know that I expect them to live more than 10 years. But the other thing that you'll note about that Kaplan-Meier curve is that re there is no plateau. We haven't cured myeloma yet. So patients are, are living a long time but they ultimately relapse. The progression, the average progression-free survival is in the range of around six years, and the average overall survival is o over 10 years. And so we still have a lot of treatments in, in the relapse setting, and, um, and, and multiple relapse happen, and so we need to continue to develop uh, new therapies. Um, what do we do for patients with relapsed and refractory myeloma? We often um, will, we sometimes can go back to what we did previously and recycle what we did previously. We now have second and third and maybe even fourth generation of the class of drugs that we use, the, the image, the proteasome inhibitors, the monoclonal antibodies, and we mix and match and get some benefit out of that. We still have um, chemotherapy, conventional chemotherapy. We can go back to high-dose chemotherapy. We have drugs with unique mechanism of action. Selenexor is called an, an XPO1 or an exportin inhibitor, a new class of, uh, of drugs in myeloma. And now we have a new target uh, in myeloma called BCMA. BCMA stands for B-cell maturation antigen. It's a great target for a myeloma drug because BCMA only exists on plasma cells. And currently, from, an, from a drug, what's been approved is we have antibody drug conjugates uh, and CAR T-cell. Um, I'm not going to talk about CAR T-cell today, but we will talk uh, uh, about antibody drug conjugates. So, so, in, so I know we're all familiar with monoclonal antibodies, particularly in, in, in uh, ophthalmology with bevacizumab, um, but antibody drug conjugate takes the technology of a monoclonal, of a monoclonal antibody and, and combines it to a chemotherapy. So with the monoclonal antibody uh, targeted in this situation, the BCMA, we deliver the chemotherapy in this setting, the chemotherapy's MMAF it, um, uh, and and what happens, and, and, and that's what you see with the monoclonal antibody, there's four chemotherapy molecules for, for each antibody. And the antibody binds to the BCMA on the myeloma cell, um, then um, goes inside the myeloma cell, is cleaved, and is able to act within the myeloma cell, leading to cell death. In addition, because it's a therapeutic monoclonal antibody, it works through its uh, immune mechanisms through antibody-dependent uh, cytotoxicity and other immune mechanisms. Um, and so, we, so over the past 20 years, there's been a lot of new drug development. And in these past 20 years, we've developed now uh, an unexpected relationship with our ophthalmology colleagues. We learned with bortezomib now 10, 15, 20 years ago that there's a fair amount of ocular and eyelid complications. 
Um, we, and then um, um, over the past three or four years with the development of the antibody drug conjugate, um, uh, belantabab, mafodotin, uh, I will, we, will, we shorten it to Belomaf. It's easier to say than Belantamab Mafodotin. Um, with Belomaf, we have seen a significant amount of ocular um, toxicity, particularly keratopathy. And as soon as I say the word keratopathy, I now hand it over to my uh, ophthalmologist colleagues. So. Um, the bortezomib especially is very familiar to our oculoplastics colleagues as well as the cornea intersegment uh, colleagues we have. It causes fairly severe blepharitis, mybomitis, and chalazions, multiple large chalazions in these patients. Uh, the overall incidence is still pretty low, but those who do have this can have uh, a very, very significant quality of life issues. Um, it, 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 I, I've not heard of a patient who's lost vision permanently from a chalazion, but it isn't comfortable or feasible for a lot of folks to keep uh, uh, you know, functioning with large chalazions on their eyelids. This is the biggest case series on bortezomib reported, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's not a high incidence. And generally, they respond to conservative therapy. And by conservative, I mean warm compresses, lid scrubs, topical uh, or oral antibiotics, and topical or oral steroids. Um, but certainly stopping the medication uh, helps resolve these symptoms a lot better um, and, and certainly speaks for the underlying mechanism, which is really that bortezomib. And we think it's the boron in the bortezomib, right, that leads to these chalazion. Um, very, very interesting. Um, it's from my experience and talking to my colleagues, it's very rare that an ophthalmologist has ever gone back to an oncologist and said, stop the bortezomib because of uncontrolled chalazion. But certainly the patients are quite bothered by these and quality of life matters uh, uh, for these patients sometimes. Uh, this is a case report where tobramycin uh, dexamethasone seems to have resolved this patient's blepharitis, and that's usually the response we expect. But uh, with persistent continued therapy with bortezomib, uh, these side effects can be recurrent. Um, the Bellamaf, on the other hand, works uh, on a completely different part of the eyeball, on the cornea, specifically the epithelium. Uh, we all know a healthy cornea needs healthy limbal stem cells, and uh, healthy epithelial regeneration is what keeps it safe, uh, infection-free, and uh, nice and clear. Um, we also know the stem cells live near the limbus, and as well as in the basal epithelium, something called transient uh, amplifying cells, and these migrate centripetally towards the center of the cornea, uh, as well as vertically up towards the superficial epithelium as they regenerate and uh, replenish the epithelial layer. We think, and this is still a very much a topic of research, that the Bellamaf gets internalized by these transient epithelial cells that then leads to their apoptosis, but they still continue that progression um, moving through the cornea, both the centripetally as well as uh, vertically up towards the surface. And they cause very, very interesting side effects, something called microcystic epithelial changes. We'll talk more about that, but most of the information we have about this medication came from this DREAM2 trial. Yeah, so the, the, in the development of the um, belantamab mafodotin or Belomaf, 
Uh, this was the pivotal study that led to the approval, and they asked the question, what's the optimal dose of comparing efficacy and toxicity? So they used two different doses in the study, very similar number of patients, 2.5 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks versus 3.4 milligrams. And um, the, the dose that moved forward with approval based on, again, combination of efficacy and toxicity. And again, this was done in, in, a, in a group of myeloma patients that had four prior therapies and really had nothing left uh, from an efficacy standpoint. And um, this is sort of the good news, bad news from an efficacy standpoint. The response rate is 32%. So uh, when I tell my patients, about a third of patients respond. And again, this was, this was in a group of patients where there was really nothing else to offer them. Those patients who respond, the duration or the median duration of response is, uh, is, a pro- is 11 months. And so for a group of patients that really didn't have anything, having a third of them respond um, and that median duration of 11 months is what led to the approval. Now, from a toxicity perspective, I view this as a very uh, low toxicity regimen. Um, or, or therapy and easy to give. It's intravenous. It's one dose every three weeks. And I'll just put, push off the eye toxicity for a moment. The, 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 the thrombocytopenia, which is very common with a lot of, of our drugs, um, is, is manageable. Um, the other toxicity that of note is that it can be associated with an infusion-related reaction, but it's uncommon, uh, approximately 20% of patients. It's rare that it's severe. And there's really minimal um, uh, things like fatigue. Um, there's nausea in a quarter of patients, but none of them is severe. And then the major side effect, the one that we really have to think about with this medication, is keratopathy. And so keratopathy happens in about three quarters of patients. A, a little more than 50% of the patients will have a uh, change in their visual acuity. And it can be, it's severe um, at grade three or more in somewhere between a third and half of patients. Um, and what's interesting is that the amount, when we did the study, even it, all patients were screened, which is how we practice, and we saw some level of keratopathy in 72% of patients, uh, whereas 56% of patients reported some sort of symptom, blurry vision or dry eyes, um, and so, uh, or a change in their visual acuity. And so um, what that tells us is there is some keratopathy that happens without symptoms. Um, now, and it was a small number of patients who had such visual acuity, uh, who had significant visual acuity change, and then it's, it was rare, under 5% of patients actually had to discontinue uh, secondary to a corneal event. And so the other thing that's important about it, and this is a busy slide, but what this slide tells us is that of those patients who developed keratopathy and the standard when a patient had keratopathy or significant keratopathy was to hold the drug, um, more than three out of four of them got better with dose holding and the median time to improvement was, uh, was 24 days. And so it, it, that's about the length of a cycle. So if we hold one cycle, then that patient um, uh, will, will be better and we can go back to treatment. Um, and so I'll let you guys uh, look at what this looks, see what this looks like.
So the study describes keratopathy. Really, they're describing two different things. Um, one is dry eye. We'll get there. But really, the unique thing to this drug, never seen really before with any of the other chemotherapeutic agents, is these microcystic epithelial changes. These are purely epithelial, intracellular changes that are not related to high pressure that we're used to. They're not related to underlying corneal edema as we're used to. These are purely epithelial processes. Um, we used to see these with some of the older, older drugs, um, uh, but you know those used to be responsive to steroid. None of these seem to be responsive to steroid. They sort of do their thing where they start peripherally, migrate to the center, and then kind of disappear with dose hold. Um, they're kind of challenging to see until you really get used to seeing these, um, do require uh, uh, high magnification and do require either retroillumination or indirect illumination to visualize these. Uh, but, you know, once these, these patients are seen a few times, they're not hard, they're not, uh, hard to miss. Um, another picture of these, they just look like these tiny little microses. They always start in the periphery and then migrate towards the center. This is a patient of mine. Um, I just think it's a, a much, much uh, a profound picture with fluorescein here because they're hard to capture on camera. This is a patient. The first picture is when she came in for screening. Um, within the first infusion, she had some peripheral microses. Not a great photo there. You may see some right uh, at the edge here. And this is uh, when she came back the second time. Much more profound microsis with uh, changes entering the, the, the central visual axis. And hers was bad enough that she even had some underlying uh, stromal edema from just loss of integrity of her epithelium. Um, the last picture is after every, you know, after a couple of dose holes and her symptoms completely resolved and her exam returned back to normal. As the same patient, the first picture here, uh, again, is after one infusion, she had a lot of punctate epithelial keratopathy that kept worsening and almost had that limbal stem cell pattern here with a lot of world epithelium, and all of those uh, resolved with dose holds. And both of these are considered keratopathy uh, as defined in that DREAM2 study, both those microcystic epithelial-like changes as well as the punctate uh, uh, keratopathy that we are more used to. Now, let's go through a case here. Uh, Dr. Kaufman. Okay. Um, patient is a 73-year-old woman with relapsed refractory myeloma. Uh, four prior lines of therapy have uh, failed her. Um, she does have what we call standard risk disease, so we don't expect it to be rapidly progressing. We don't expect to see extramedullary disease and things like that. As standard of care, she had had um, uh, proteasome inhibitors or PIs, IMIDs, again, things like thalidomide and lenalidomide, as well as anti-CD38 antibodies like daratumab or isatuximab. Um, she does have um, uh, mobility issues. She uses a walker, history of cataract surgery. She had previously had a vascular event. And then the question is, you know, is she a candidate for Bellamaf? Um, when should the ophthalmologist uh, be consulted? Um, how, how should she be consulted uh, consult on ocular toxicity? What to expect is the primary event vascular event worrisome. So I, I'll just take a stab at this. This is, this is really the, the ideal candidate 
for Bellamath. Um, there, she's, her performance status is limited, um, and there's nothing in her history that would prevent us from moving forward. Prior cataract surgery, prior other, um, other eye disease um, doesn't limit us. Um, and if we're considering uh, belantamab mafodotin for her, then absolutely should, should, she should see an ophthalmologist. And um, what you know, I, I'm I, I, I'm interested in in what you have to say. What I tell patients is exactly what I what I, what I said to you, which is in general, this is a very well tolerated medication. Um, if you're one of the lucky one out of three patients that responds, I expect to get almost a year out of it. The biggest thing I worry about is going is keratopathy, and and the good news is that if we we're going to monitor it really carefully, and if you get keratopathy, we can hold the drug and the vast majority of people get better and then we can go back to treatment. Yep. Um, as far as contraindications, there really aren't any absolute contraindications. But if a patient has severe ocular surface disease, severe dry eye, um, uh, you know, pre-existing you know, really anything on the ocular surface. Uh, if they have a compromised cornea, history of cornea transplants, LASIK, uh, Fuchs dystrophy, really anything that could make them more susceptible to uh, these side effects, um, they may not be the ideal patient for Bellamaf. Uh, the other th- thing is these patients vision fluctuates dramatically. And if their lifestyle is not compatible with fluctuating vision, then they may not be candidates either. Um, so in terms of, you know, addressing these, uh, especially for bortezomib, you know, if, my, if I'm correct, you really just refer these patients as needed, right? Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is something where we wouldn't refer everybody um, to, we wouldn't refer everybody for an initial evaluation. It's not that common. And for the most part, we can follow the simple measures of, of the warm compresses, antibiotics, and so forth. And it's when those um, aren't effective is when we make the referral. Right. And usually uh, conservative therapy or even, you know, above uh, conservative therapy is tried. And if they are recurrent, if they are non-responsive, and, and really only in those situations is when the question of discontinuing bortezomib from an ophthalmology perspective would come into play. Um, but most patients can be managed with conservative therapy. Bellamaf is a whole another beast here. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I, as I mentioned, I think before we start treatment, we, um, that we uh, counsel the patient on the, to- on the potential toxicity. Um, we make the referral to the ophthalmologist to make sure, the, to uh, both to make sure there's not established keratopathy for another reason, significant dry eye, as well as to uh, really establish a baseline. While on therapy, um, we query patients about about vision changes. In fact, uh, uh, we saw a patient who the who had seen uh, who had had a, a, a clear exam two weeks prior to dosing, but came in and told us that they had um, unilateral uh, vision uh, decrease in visual acuity. And this happened just yesterday in my clinic, and when we held therapy and and have them go back uh, to see Dr. Velocity and team. Um, the, and I think this is really where, um, at least in the, in the, in my clinic, we all need to be asking our patients about, about, uh, 
about vision changes. Um, and this is one of those issues that, again, with the uh, likelihood of recovery, this is one of those issues where we really don't want the patient not reporting to us. And sometimes patients don't want to report to us their symptoms because they feel if they report their symptoms, then they won't be able to get the treatment they need. And so it's very important that we have that good communication with patients. This is where the nurses and the APPs uh, are really important. From an ophthalmology perspective, we do see these patients very closely um, prior to their first dose for their screening exam to make sure they're good candidates. And it is very important to get a really good visual acuity on these uh, patients because that is the baseline against which we are measuring their performance. Um, prior to every dose, uh, these patients require an eye exam. And it doesn't have to be exactly just before their dose. It can be uh, one week after their previous dose and within two weeks prior to their next dose, um, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, whether they have keratopathy or not, these patients are placed on a very aggressive ocular surface regimen, so preservative-free artificial tears at least four times a day. Um, and if I need to use things like Restasis or Zydra, if they have underlying dry eye to begin with, mild dry eye where they would still be good candidates for Bellamav, we optimize them before they get to the treatments. A good dilated exam, as with any oncology patient, because they always have surprises in the back of the eye. And if they need things like new glasses, if they need, you know, cataracts addressed, really anything we can do to kind of get them to a great baseline prior to starting this medication would be ideal. The scale we use to grade these patients is something called keratopathy visual acuity scale. And it's unique to uh, Bellamaf here. Um, and they uh, have about four grades that they can progress through. Normal is their baseline exam. Um, Grade one is mild keratopathy, and this includes, like I said, both microcystic like cyst, uh, like changes as well as punctate changes, and a very minimal change in best corrected visual acuity. And uh, this always gets us. Patients can come in with quite dramatically fluctuating vision, but all we care about is their best corrected visual acuity. And this is something to keep in mind: is their refractions do change. They do tend to get um, hyperopic and myopic shifts as the treatment progresses, but all this uh, uh, grading scale requires is their best corrected visual acuity at the time of their exam in that office. Um, grade two is when they have more moderate changes and more profound decrease in visual acuity. And uh, grade three and four are what we hope to avoid to, you know, really to hopefully never get, but much more superficial keratopathy, profound decrease in vision, and or corneal uh, epithelial defects or ulcerations. Looking at it uh, from a visual perspective, grade one is those peripheral corneal microses. Grade two, they're starting to kind of get close to the center, but still spare the central three to four millimeters there. Uh, grade three are much more confluent central um, microcystic uh, epithelial changes. And grade four is when they have a frank uh, abrasion uh, uh, or other, other, you know, ulceration, really anything else uh, beyond that point. And this goes for uh, uh, the microcystic epithelial changes. Punctate epithelial changes, we would grade them um, as we would any dry eye patient, mild, moderate, severe, uh, kind of following in that grade one, two, three um, uh, category there. 
what the oncology folks do, it really depends on the grading we give them. And, you know, it is important to have, you know, continuity if possible, because a lot of that uh, grading can be, uh, especially the, the superficial keratopathy can be somewhat subjective, and it is nice to have the same person seeing these patients over time. Um, for grade one, really, we just kind of keep going and use conservative therapy, right? Grade two and above is when you start modifying therapy. Grade two, we hold Belamaf until their symptoms regress and restart at the same dose. Grade three, you hold until the symptoms regress to grade one and start at a reduced dose. And once they get to grade four, there's a serious discussion about discontinuing that particular therapy. What happens in these patients with dose uh, delays or reductions? I'm always worried when I may, you know, tell these patients that they're grade two or grade three, that somehow I'm... I'm I've let them down and, you know, now I'm letting their melanoma get worse, but it doesn't seem to be so. Yeah. And so we were talking earlier, I find it, you know, that, that balance of the difference between the mild and the moderate and, and that it's sort of a sub, somewhat of a subjective call. And, um, you know, from, from my perspective with the knowledge that, um, patients, when they after they've d delayed dose that it's a the minority of patients in the in the context of a dose delay progress it's not zero but only 13 of the patients progressed and i've had patients hold for three six nine twelve weeks and so it's very important for me that um the the, the determination of uh, keratopathy, the scale is a, is as objective as possible and not really worrying about the, the, the negative impact on, on the patient's myeloma. Um, because the vast majority of these patients will remain stable until their keratopathy gets better. And so sometimes I view keratopathy, it's, patients don't require toxicity to have a response, but sometimes those patients who have more keratopathy, they're the ones who have the deeper response. So there's some type of relationship between, it, it's almost a dose, what the body sees um, in and, and it's marked by keratopathy tells us how well the drug's working. And so I can confidently hold drug for three weeks, six weeks, nine weeks. We have the one patient together who, um, it, it, you'll, I can, I'll let you describe, but clinically he develops keratopathy. We hold one, two or three cycles. He gets better. And then we, and then we retreat. Right. And we've been at it for three years now with the, this gentleman, very predictable, uh, pattern that certain patients follow. Yeah. Uh, the take-home points really from our end is these patients do need to be seen and they do need to get a good exam with a good best corrected visual acuity, a slit lamp ex exam as well as fluorescein staining to identify their keratopathy and to appropriately grade them and manage them. Because from my perspective, my goal is to never let a patient get to grade three or grade four uh, because we really want to stop that medication much uh, prior to uh, getting that severe. And, and these patients do have visual acuity changes subjectively. They do get better with a best corrected visual acuity often, um, but it's impossible to change glasses every three weeks. So functionally, they may have visual acuity changes, but all of these patients do recover um, uh, if we stop the medication or hold the medication. 
Now, what we don't know is what this uh, drug is going to do long term. Uh, we know that these microcysts affect the, the very superficial cornea, just the epithelia and, and maybe the anterior stroma. But we also know they do seem to be doing some structural damage to the, the nerve plexus. Uh, there seems to be some nerve fragmentation. And this is pretty early on, within the first couple months after Bellamath. And the significance of this uh, long term is just not clear. Um, there are case reports of these patients having very profound, uh, almost limbal stem cell-like pattern of fluorescein staining, but this seems to be completely reversible. But repeat stressors to those stem cells, um, we just don't know. We just don't know what's uh, going to happen. But at the same time, these are folks who failed four or more lines of um, therapy, and oftentimes uh, there aren't great next options. You know, going back to our patient here... Yeah, so after, um, so she actually, uh, this was a patient that um, participated on a clinical trial, uh, and I, I had mentioned earlier that um, uh, that Bellamaf had a low toxicity profile relative to the, the typical medications that we give. And so it makes it really an ideal drug within oncology to be a partner with our other agents. And um, uh, she participated on one of our clinical trials, the combination of uh, uh, belantamab, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, all three drugs with, with known ocular toxicity. And um, after she started therapy, um, she had, uh, after two doses, uh, she had grade two keratopathy. Um, she did develop toxicity from bortezomib after starting therapy also. Um, and with, with the bortezomib-based toxicity, we, we had, uh, was able to improve with just conservative ocular management. Um, and then with the uh, belantamab, we held for two cycles or six weeks. Um, it got better. And then uh, we, according to the, the guidelines, we resumed at the same dose. Um, it's really an interesting question at this point it is not only, and I think there's questions in the chat, um, what, what, what we're learning about the keratopathy is not only is it dose related, it's frequency related. And if we can, and we can, especially in the responding patient, we can spread out the dose. So, in, in, and, and sometimes, including dose reductions, we've spread out the dose with planned treatment every six or nine weeks. And that way, even if they develop keratopathy grade two, um, by the time it gets to six weeks and they see you, they no longer have the, the grade two keratopathy. Um, this particular patient, um, uh, she stayed on oral doxycycline for quite a while, but you're right, I've managed her cataracts from the dexamethasone, I've managed her chalasia from the bortezomib, and um, she's going strong, I think year two, uh, maybe year three here on the belantamab, and has a very predictable uh, uh, set of infusions, dose holes, infusions, dose holes for this particular patient. Um, now, if she had had grade three or higher, right, we certainly uh, would have held her infusions and started at a reduced dose for her. Yeah. 
to summarize uh, really the bortezomib-related ocular complications, while rare, can uh, be particularly bothersome, and conservative therapy is often enough, but some of these patients may need uh, more aggressive uh, management. And keep in mind, these are older, sicker patients, so it could certainly be a masquerader like sebaceous cell carcinoma. So it is important to just kind of keep a broad uh, perspective when seeing these patients. Um, and in particular to Belamav, these are partnerships with these patients that can last a long time. And the prescribers who uh, dose Belamav are required to enroll in something called Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy Program per the FDA. And just a very, very significant part of that is monitoring for all these side effects and appropriately dosing them uh, with ophthalmology management hand-in-hand -hand here. Um, it is very important for most of these patients to counsel them appropriately that they will have uh, significant ocular vision fluctuations and that they will need uh, drops frequently and to reassure them that any ocular toxicity is manageable and does not seem to very significantly adversely affect their systemic prognosis here. Um, my go-to, I start everybody on preservative-free artificial tears four times a day. Um, and the little subsidy uh, in these patients using steroid drops did not seem to provide any benefit. In fact, we had a patient or two with some steroid response. Um, and there's no definite contraindication to contact lenses. But any patient who wears soft contact lenses and has contact lens-related dry eye may not be uh, may want to be counseled against wearing these contact lenses. Um, there are folks who use scleral lenses for some of these patients to manage their severe dry eye. Uh, and again, it has been very much an anecdotal thing. There's no uh, trials looking at kind of systematically at some of these therapies. And uh, this, uh, again, we do this as well as I know your team of nurses as well do this. Let every patient know that driving and operating anything sensitive while bel using Belamaf can cause problems and needs need to be done carefully. Um, this is a big, uh, this is a drug that's required a lot of co-management, but this won't be the last drug, unfortunately. I'm sure you have others in the pipeline that require lots of uh, um, ocular monitor, uh, monitoring here. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Do you need to be a cornea specialist to do this, to, to be a partner with the oncologist who's treating myeloma patients? No, you do not. Um, I think especially following that KVA scale, uh, being able to see the microsis is the most challenging part there, but once a provider is comfortable with visualizing those microsis, they do not need to be a cornea specialist in particular. Because I'm in academics, we have the luxury of having it be a cornea specialist, but it doesn't have to be one. Right. And uh, we were talking earlier, there are some oncologists in the community that are not able to give this drug, which, which is an important part of our treatment for myeloma patients because they don't have their uh, a partner and uh, an eye professional as a partner. So I, 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 I say if you uh, are an ophthalmologist and you hang a shingle that says you know how to do this, you'll, get, you'll find an oncologist out there who's looking for you. So. And these are certainly patients who are very appreciative um, because they, you know, they've certainly gone through the ringer over the past many, many years with uh, multiple myeloma. Yeah. Right. Great. I know we have a few questions, but anything from the audience here? Hello. 
Can you hear me? Yes, we can. can. Would you say that there's a cornea at risk, such as uh, uh, an average central corneal thickness or an endothelial cell count that makes some of these patients more likely to have the keratopathy? As part of the DREAM trial, some of those uh, measures were looked at, and none of them seemed to be associated with the, 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 the keratopathy changes. This seems to be purely epithelial. This does not seem to be affected by the underlying you know, stromal or endothelial pathology, except... You know, I do have a patient with Fuchs dystrophy. He's got, you know, mildly decompensated Fuchs dystrophy. And he, uh, every time he gets these microcystic changes, he does have a fairly pronounced uh, uh, loss of vision that changes months to recover. So I would say to be on the safe side, if there is any underlying corneal pathology that you think could affect, uh, you know, the healing from a, you know, kind of a, uh, compromised epithelium, they're probably not candidates for Belmaf. Yeah. Thank you. All kinds of my bulimic gland dysfunction treatments, IPL, lipoflows, all kinds of stuff. Would it be useful to pair with somebody who has that type of additional? interest and the ability to do those kinds of things, is there any evidence that that would help support the continued use of this drug? Right. So as we said, there's really two things, right? There's those microcystic changes. Those do not seem to respond to anything we throw at them. So, you know, Restasis, Zydra, Serum, you, know, you name it, you know, vasoconstrictors uh, really don't seem to respond. They kind of do their thing. Um, the dry eye component, I do think, could be modifiable. Right, but that's usually not the most prominent uh, uh, thing that affects their vision, um, because these patients are just—they all carry their artificial tears. They kind of know the drill with the with the, art, the dry eye, but I do think that can be modifiable with everything you've mentioned. Um, though those microcystic changes, though, are a little bit more stubborn. And blepharitis, yeah. for instance, IPL seems to work really well against chalasia, and having the ability to do maybe a blepex or other things is kind of a setting a baseline, and then having hypochlorous acid and or Cleardex or other things that might help to manage the blepharitis better. I think that's, especially in patients who are on bortezomib, I think that's a great idea. Um, there's no clinical trials, uh, uh, but I think it's such a small percent of patients who have these side effects that you're right. Um, absolutely. I thought there was another question over here. I think I, I may have answered it in my own head. Um, when do you decide to include restasis, and are you doing it in the hopes that it'll help up the road as the effect of the restasis comes to bear? So in patients who have pre-existing dry eye, I do start them on some sort of anti-inflammatory to optimize their surface, so to speak. Um, uh, again, the, the data is just not there that any of these seem to modify the incidence of uh, punctate keratopathy significantly in the setting of this drug. But I don't think, uh, I do not think it's a bad idea to start restasis by any means. I don't know if it's going to, I, do, I cannot answer that it's going to make a huge meaningful change in the management of, uh, you know, especially that KVA scale because it's predominantly guided by those microcystic epithelial changes. 
but I don't, you know, I think the patients would certainly be more comfortable. We've got, um, oh, please. So it, most oncology drugs don't require a risk mitigation strategy, um, but I do understand that thalidomide and revlimid right. can cause birth defects. So right. the, the, the emphasis is to prevent a pregnant woman from inadvertently getting a dose right. that was scheduled for a myeloma patient. Um, now, this drug has a REMS, so I'm really surprised to hear that. Uh, so what is it you're not telling us about non-ocular toxicity that they the, would require a REMS? The REMS is solely for the ocular toxicity. Solely for the ocular toxicity. Uh, the, apparently, the FDA thinks the vision's important. And, and apparently, there's a handful of people around here who would agree. It's that important. You, I mean, I, I, that you make, I, mean, I have to be honest, we were surprised when they came out with a REMS, but without a REMS, there is no belantamab mafodotin. We were, I think we, we were surprised also, but I think it is be, I think the, I think it gets back to, there's just not this, this easy and tight relationship between regular on, oncologists and ophthalmologists. Um, again, uh, and so, and, and the fear was, and I think there's a lot of questions online. The fear was we, that it wasn't, we weren't going to see it. And then people were going to become blind and we, and we were going to act in the, in the, in the hope of helping the patient's myeloma, people were going to become blind. And this was, and this is why we have a REMS. I also had another thought. Other BCMA-targeted uh, therapies like CAR-T BCMA, right. which is really taking off, yeah. uh, do they, is there keratopathy with that as well? The keratopathy is from the chemotherapy, from the MMAF, the, the, the antibody drug conjugate. It's the chemo, it's, so it's a great question because in theory with an ADC, it could be from, the, it could be from the, the targets, the monoclonal antibody. It could be from the linker, from, from the chemotherapy. This is specifically this chemotherapy causing the keratopathy, not, the, not BCMA. So it's not um, the actual antibody. It's not it's the really antibody. The, so is the evidence of the M MMAE uh, basically gets cleaved off of the antibody and it's, it's free in the body to affect the liver or the eye or whatever? Enough free. Enough, there's enough free MMAF in the body to affect the eye. That's correct. And I think the mechanism of how it affects the eye is still very much sort of nebulous. Um, it seems to affect those stem cells. It seems to cause very much sort of a stem cell pattern of changes. Um, how it gets there, why it, is it the blood vessels, is it the tears? We don't know. Right, yeah. Great questions. Um, so we have uh, questions from online that I'd like to uh, share. So I think how quickly can patients be started on Bellomineff once we recommend it, um, including coordinating exams. From our perspective, we usually can get this done in a week. Right, right, because we have that, you know, yeah. relatively tight partnership. Right, yeah. so we, but, you, but in order to have, to give Bellmath, the REMS has to have, the oncologist has to sign up, the ophthalmologist or the eye, the eye professional has to sign up, and the third, and then the infusion center that it's delivered has to sign up, and the infusion center has to see sign-off from me, it has to see sign-off from both of us to say it's okay to give. So, um, so it usually, it, it really, it, it's a, it takes about a week. Um, 
I'm going to maybe let you ask yeah, answer so the second question. The second question is about whether there's a sense that patients with baseline mild to moderate dry eye or blepharitis or any ocular surface disease are more likely to suffer keratopathy than those without. Um, the answer is yes. I, I do think so. I think if they have some underlying compromised surface, I do think they get that punctate epithelial uh, uh, changes much more frequently. I don't know if I can say definitively for the microcystic epithelial changes. Those do seem to be kind of their own independent beast. I don't think Dream 2 fleshed that out either. The study hasn't fleshed that out either. Yeah. And there's a question, if not caught early, how bad can this get? And I think the answer is, is we don't know because we don't let that happen. Um, and we don't let that happen because it, now in clinical trials is because we practice per the clinical trial with regular visits and now with the REMS program because we have regular follow-up. Um, and then, which is another question, there was another question about is how severe can it be? And uh, they, patients can get corneal ulcers. I don't know if you've ever seen corneal ulcers. We haven't, but there is one patient in that DREAM2 study who did end up uh, progressing to grade four corneal ulceration. And that person healed, uh, at least you know per the data, but it can happen, especially um, there's a, just a handful of patients who get just profound, profound microcystic changes after one dose. And it is, you know, something about that particular person or that particular cornea, it is unclear. Um, but, you know, knock on wood, haven't had anybody go to grade four keratopathy. And then there's a question about eyelid complications with other agents in the bortezomib class. And so there's another um, boron-based um, proteasome inhibitor called exasimib. And exasimib can be associated with ocular toxicity. It's much less frequent than bortezomib. And there's a third drug called carfilzomib. Carfilzomib works is a proteasome inhibitor, but works in a, is, is a completely different drug with no uh, boron. And there's no ocular toxicity let me rephrase that. There's, there's no predictable, predicted uh, ocular toxicity with uh, carfilzomib. So this isn't a proteasome inhibitor effect. This is truly a drug effect. You look like you have a question. So other MMAE-type uh, oncology drugs like Cadsila in breast cancer, do you see any ocular effects? Um, you would, I would in, so I would anticipate the answer is yes. Um, but There's a I don't couple other ADCs um, uh, uh, that do report, but it's so early. Some of these drugs are relatively new, um, and all we know is what they report in the study saying, you know, ocular side effects. Um, it's, it's not very clear. There's really not much data about similar microcystic epithelial-like changes happening. Yeah. Cat Sila has been out 10 years, I, I should say. Oh, sorry. I think I was talking about other ADC, the antibody well, drug conjugates. Yeah, Ketsyla is yeah. a uh, HER2 uh, not the MMAE, MMAE yeah. conjugate. Okay. I yeah, there might be. So we. So it's clear there's not as much, and, and I don't think that's that's obviously poorly understood. And it might have to do with with the amount of chemotherapy per antibody where there's where there's four and there might just be a get a higher dose of the chemotherapy i'm not i'm not as familiar with the the breast cancer world and i can i can look it up and get back to you i'm not sure but it, yeah. but it's clearly not they don't have a rem so it's not right. clearly not as bad question in front yeah there's a question about this fluctuation in vision and myopic and hyperopic shifting and the question is that a corneal event related to say the microcyst or is this something happening at the lens or some other level of refraction that 
is obvious. Um, they, it's, it's related to the cornea, especially when they get those microses. They do seem to have some like kind of flattening and steepening type effect there. Um, they do have topographic changes um, when you follow them with topographic changes. But at least for the purpose of following these patients with that KBA scale, as long as they best correct too close to their baseline, as for getting the infusion, it's irrelevant. Functionally, for a patient, you're absolutely correct. It can be profound changes on their visual acuity. So I think there's a lot of questions online that I think we answered during the talk, but there's one question that we really, that, um, that is a good question. I just lost it. Does lower doses of uh, Belomaf result in less frequent, less severe ocular toxicity? And the answer is yes. We do- dose reduction, but we, but at um, the different one in the in the dream two study comparing 3.4 and 4, 2.5 there was no major difference in either efficacy or toxicity and so that's why the lower dose was chosen um, but th- we can go e- much even even lower doses and at lower than 2.5 there is less keratopathy it's not zero um, but I think there's a lot of clinical trials out there right now that we're using um, medications to try to upregulate BCMA on the cell so that we can give less uh, um, Belomaf. There's a, a combination with a class of drugs called gamma-secretase inhibitors, and gamma-secretase inhibitors allow more BCMA to be on the cell so that we can use a lower dose of the Belomaf, decrease the risk of keratopathy, and maintain the efficacy because we've increased the BCMA in the cells. And there was a question about uh, experience with continuing therapy, even with grade 2 toxicity. Yeah. Yeah, so grade two toxicity, the recommendation is is to hold, and I, I follow that recommendation. And this is the type of situation where um, we can bring the patient, we bring the patient back in in three weeks. And again, it's that whole concept being comfortable holding, uh, because those patients, a large part who who have toxicity, will often get better, and we can treat them in six weeks instead of three weeks. And I think that's probably it. Um, I'd like to thank those in the audience and those online for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AHH 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.